that talk is about to begin Hey, 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 come on in Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. It is another Monday Madness. I'm Nathan Baer from Cleveland.com along with Doug Lamerese. Today, the madness applies to, I think, the feeling of this fan base. Madness about the loss to Oregon on Saturday. Madness about how it happened. And madness about um, something that maybe they, they, they saw as inevitable or something that they feel like has been coming for a while as far as especially how this defense played on Saturday and what may or may not be available to fix it. Doug and I have both rewatched at least most of the game. I think Doug's watched it all and I'm still in the process of of watching this as we record on Saturday, but it definitely gave me a different perspective on on what I saw um, or what I thought I saw in in some occasions on Saturday. I'm going to start off. We're going to run through your questions. I know a lot of you who follow us uh, on the text 614-350- 3315. We asked you for your questions on Saturday and there was so much to talk about. We didn't really get through that. So I wanted to start off with, we're just going to kind of run down questions and we'll talk about what we've seen as we've re-examined this game. But uh, this one came from the 586. During the offseason, when you had a poll, when will Ohio State lose its first Big Ten game and had a discussion uh, about when they'd lose their first regular season game, I picked Minnesota for both. Well, I was wrong, but this loss was predictable. And while upset, I'm mystified that people are, one, surprised about the loss, and two, turning on Kerry Combs. I put this on, one, the schedule, and two, the head coach. Um, Specifically about the schedule, a change in quarterback and two relatively tough games out of the gate made this predictable. So, Doug, in retrospect, was something like this more predictable? Part of the madness is that I left the podcast, Mike, in the press box (laughs) after the game on Saturday. And we hope to get it back, but I am using a different headset, Mike. I'm using the one that Nathan uses and always sounds very uh, deep and uh, vibrant. Uh, I don't know if I – talent, Doug. Uh, well, we'll find out. Is it talent or is it the mic? So if I'm still sounding like this, then we know it's, it's talent. And whatever I speak into, I sound like a 13-year-old screaming child. I was thinking about this last night. I do feel like we sort of – came all the way around on the view of the Oregon game, right? That I think in the summer, we talked on this podcast. I think there was a lot of discussion of like, you know what? This just might be one of those things. New quarterback, you know, defensive questions. Oregon's pretty good. All of that. And then as we got closer to this, and and I think there's a couple things at play. One is – the uncertainty of the quarterback battle left uncertainty. And then once they name a quarterback and they say, well, this guy's the winner. Then I think you, a lot of people, us included to some degree, a lot of fans, you automatically have less uncertainty about the quarterback. Cause it's like, well, we know who it is. And it's not that fun to doubt the quarterback, especially when he's young and in a little bit of a tough spot. Right? So I think a lot of people kind of fell in line behind CJ Stroud once he was named. So I think that happened. Then Oregon didn't look great in week one. Then Kayvon Thibodeau and then Justin Flo were out. And so I think a lot of things came together where to some degree this is reasonable. I do not think we can underestimate the idea, though, that they didn't have their best player. They didn't have their best player. They didn't have their best player, and this is not a program. Listen, I was talking to Oregon guys before the game in the press box. Nobody on that side thought Oregon was going to win, right? Like this is the idea that, hey, 
there are some programs, Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama, where you can miss a couple five stars and be okay. They have two five star guys out on their defense. Oregon, though it's a good program, top 15 program is not at the point where you are automatic, automatically expected to withstand that kind of talent drain. So while I do think many parts of this are reasonable, I also think many parts of it are surprising. But I think just as we sort of got closer to it, we just, everybody got a little more around on the idea of like, well, it's Ohio State, man. Like, Ohio State has better players. So what are you going to do? Like, you know, this Oregon's not Oklahoma. They're not USC. Some of these other non-conference games that Ohio State's had trouble with in the past. What are you going to do? And then it turns out, well, they do have some pretty decent players. And Ohio State does have some issues that remain. So I think the, I think the texture makes a very good point. But I also sort of understand how our thought process evolved to a more positive place for Ohio State that when actually, Nathan, I think we were probably more right about this game in June than we were in September. Well, I would go back even before that because we had a pod. It was last year that we had this pod asking when will Ohio State lose its next regular season game. I think that was before last season. I think that was before the 2020 season. Probably, I'm almost sure it was because we were there was a long period there where it was kind of a wasteland and we had to talk about something because we didn't know when or if they were going to play football again. And back then, I think we saw the potential deficiencies of this team coming, and I think we gauged them pretty well. You're going to be losing the whole linebacker core. You don't know yet what's happening with the secondary, but you knew Sean Wade was probably leaving. You didn't even know if Seven Banks was very good at all, and it turns out he hasn't even played yet. Um, you had questions up front. You had question, questions everywhere. And, and then that you knew it was going to be a first-time starting quarterback. So I think we rightly said, boy, that seems like maybe this is a year where everything kind of sags back a little bit, and you can't consider Ohio State an elite team. And then we just talked about this on the pod like two weeks ago. Some very important things changed. But I think yesterday showed us why we were wrong in that assessment. That the fact, and you brought it up yesterday, it was a big part of what we talked about in the postgame pod. Um, when I say yesterday, I mean Saturday because we're recording this on Sunday. Chris Olave coming back and Thayer Munford coming back. And to some extent, Haskell Garrett coming back does not fix all of these other deficiencies that we already saw coming, right? That an offensive lineman and receivers can't fix it can't over can't make up for the deficiencies at some of these other places to enough of a degree that those aren't going to be a concern anymore and i think we saw that if we we i think we already had maybe we should have already had an inkling about that but it sort of slapped us in the face on saturday i agree it's i don't want to i don't want us to wind up covering the ground we already covered. We did, I think, have a good discussion about, like, their best players are not necessarily in the positions that change games and win you close games. And I do think that is a factor. There is a decent component of what happened Saturday that is a young quarterback missed some opportunities at inopportune times that bit them in the butt. And that part of it, particularly, Nathan, what the texter is suggesting is not surprising. And so young quarterbacks are not at their peak in the second starts of their career. And if this was the eighth or 10th or 16th start of CJ Stroud's career, I think maybe Ohio state wins that game. I think it's probably likely Ohio state wins that game. And so I do think in the end, that part of it, nobody should be surprised by, but I think we got around to the point of 
well, there's enough other stuff to pick him up, especially in a world where the guy who is Oregon's game wrecker isn't going to be himself and turned out not to even be on the field. So I, I don't, I just want to make sure that we don't underestimate that. That is going to linger. That'll be a discuss. That's going to be a discussion point in the committee room in November when they are comparing similar teams, when they evaluate Ohio state's loss, they are going to evaluate the fact that Oregon's best player wasn't there. Now, listen, when they evaluate Clemson's loss, to Georgia, they will also evaluate the fact that George Pickens might be lighting up the world by then as Georgia's best receiver, and Georgia had a bunch of skill guys out in that game. And so Georgia wasn't at its best and still found a way to be Clemson. So we're not acting like, you know, Ohio State's the only team that loses to teams that have injuries. But, man, that is a big part of this because there's a chunk, Nathan. I mean, if we would have – when we were talking about Oregon in June, like what, what's the number one reason you think Oregon might beat Ohio State? It's like, well, Kayvon Thibodeau's number one. He didn't play, and it's, then Ohio State still lost. Yeah, and it's going to be a huge um, bonus in Oregon's favor if it loses along the way and it comes down to a conversation for the committee in the room too. I mean, that's, they're going to be able to say, um, yeah, maybe we had this slip up later or whatever, but even we could even beat a team like Ohio state on the road without our best player. I think that um, there'll be something for you guys to keep uh, talking about on the playoff, the college football playoff show, which uh, for people who follow Monday madness, we usually have a format. We are throwing that out this week. We don't care about my AP ballot and we don't really care about uh, these other teams, but Doug is going to talk about that a lot on the other shows. You guys should all be listening to that. When's the next episode, Doug Tuesday, uh, Tuesday afternoon, evening, we'll drop our Q and a episode where people, if you're a tech subscriber to that, it's uh, only a dollar a month. It's cheaper than Buckeye talk. Cause we don't text as much. 817-442-6789. We take questions from tech subscribers and answer them on the Tuesday show. And then Wednesday, we rank and rate and reevaluate the entire list of playoff contenders every week. And Ohio State's going to be in danger of getting kicked out. We kicked out – this is how good I am on my national show. We kicked Oregon out last week. And I said, well, let's kick them out. If they beat Ohio State, we'll put them right back in. And so we did. So Oregon's certainly going to be voted back into that mix. You know – we're only going – we don't go higher than 12 contenders. Ohio State's got a lot to prove that it is a playoff contender right now, and I don't, I don't think it is one of the – like it's got, it's got real problems from a playoff resume standpoint. So we'll be – we'll have to see if Shahan and I and the tech subscribers who did get, do get a vote, and it's still a pretty Ohio-heavy tech subscriber group so far, we'll see if anybody's kicking the Buckeyes out of that playoff discussion, which, by the way, maybe we have more specific questions about this, Nathan. That is the underlying thing about this that hurts, I think, fans the most. In the seven-year era of the playoff, Ohio State is always in the mix. The furthest they have ever been removed from the playoff discussion was 2014 when they lost in week two, and you kind of thought it was over. And they were way down, and then like they had to build back up, build back up, build back up. But ever since then, ever since they you know, got to the point the last couple weeks of the regular season in 2014 where they really had a shot, they've been in the mix for the playoff Every single week, except maybe Michigan week in 2015 when they were coming off the Michigan State loss and you kind of knew they were in trouble. It, isn't it fun to talk about your team in the playoff context? And if this turns into a season where that is not something people can think about or talk about, it changes the fabric of a season. I think it changes your enjoyment level. It, change, it changes how you look at other teams, what you're thinking about. Because this is not a fan base that is, I think, particularly interested in, 
hey, you think they're going to go to the Capital One Bowl? I mean, it's going to become about win the Big Ten, beat Penn State, of course beat Michigan. We're not downplaying that, but it's now a national sport with national goals for Ohio State. And if they lose another game and it becomes very, very clear that that's dead, that will be a very strange place for this fan base to be. Oh, it's really hard to fathom this program. And again, maybe we should have had lower expectations for this season for the reasons we were just talking about. But it's hard to think of Ohio State like being like we're not they're not even gonna be in the New Year's Six conversation or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, but one more loss. And it's an if right now. But yes, you're right. You're right. It's gonna be really weird. It's going to be really, really weird. We're going to talk a lot about 2022 if it gets to that point because that's the standard that, that this team has played to. And so it doesn't mean it's, it doesn't mean it's not fun, right? It doesn't mean that's, that Saturdays aren't fun. It doesn't mean that there aren't still great victories to be had and players to be celebrated and you know, a great time to have with your friends watching the game on Saturday. I don't want to act like college football season is dead for Ohio State fans. But you're going to have to change your lens a little bit, for sure. A lot of questions about coaching, about scheme, about all of those sorts of things. And I was trying to go beyond just the maybe knee-jerk stuff and, and find people who are making some like bigger picture points here. Um, this question came from the 85 By the way, if you haven't already read it, Doug wrote a great kind of summation of the, the Kerry Combs dilemma that now faces Ohio State. And how Ryan Day might approach that and and why it's a tough spot for kind of everybody involved, but why uh, it was a great line in there about, you know, sometimes uh, tough decisions are as difficult as they are necessary, something along those lines, if I, if I may paraphrase you. And I think that is really where they're sitting right now. And they've got two weeks against a softer schedule to maybe take some steps towards fixing that, but we won't know if it's been fixed, I think, for a while. Uh, but I was also surprised as I read back through, not surprised, but as I read back through the text, I maybe relieved is actually the better word, or 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 um, it, I found this kind of refreshing that there were a lot of fans who, as frustrated as they are with the defense, were kind of moving past that to Ryan Day. And this is really the first time I think the Day has faced this kind of criticism. As you might expect, the other losses that he's had in his career were in the playoff um, in, a, in a game that was affected by some officiating and, and some other things that were going on. And then the Alabama loss, which was affected by COVID and in some other things along the way. Um, so this came from the eight, five, eight. I still think there's a genuine problem. And I think it starts with day. We kept thinking that day is going to be a bit different than urban. I used the word ruthless as many of the best writers. I think he meant beat writers, but we've used it. So we'll say best, best writers. Used just to be well. clear, to be clear, just to, I think, I think the text acknowledges I invented that. That's me. So if, 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 if Ari and Bill are talking about that, they're stealing it from me. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, like we've, we, yeah, th- that, I think that discussion started on Buckeye Talk. The ruthless, it's a fascinating discussion, but I just want to claim credit even though I already had it. Sorry. Feel free. Um, uh, Buckeye Talk. Claiming credit for things you're already credited for. Buckeye Talk. <laughs> Um, but I think Ryan has the Lincoln Riley syndrome of not emphasizing defense and the worst problem is accepting low performing coordinators and even promoting them when the results say otherwise, I'm not discussing even firing or demoting combs. Um, I'm discussing the golden opportunity this off season to get a defensive mind after Madison left. It's, it's a longer text that goes into a lot of the issues around that, but I didn't know if you wanted to follow up on kind of what you wrote today, but 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 also, I mean, this is why back in the off season, the past two off seasons, when we've discussed the decisions Ryan Day has made with the coaching staff, this is why. This is what we were talking about was like when you get to this moment, 
you you can't look at everything through the lens of you can't just look at the end result of a win and not look at everything that led to that and whether it's pointing in the right direction and i think this texture makes a good point as we've tried to make that these decisions matter i think you have pointed out before that you kind of dismiss maybe um, dismiss isn't the right word but you don't get too wrapped up in any single one assistant coach's performance but i think you if you stack them if you stack bad decisions we've seen what happens and it could be happening here now i mean this is why i freak out about things like parker fleming being promoted with no qualifications. I, and I think people think sometimes that I'm being a, a jerk about stuff. The, the text is exactly right. They had an opportunity to bring in somebody and they promoted a guy on staff who has no resume, who never coached defense before. They're basically a defensive coach down right now. They have 10 assistants. The head coach is already an offensive guy. And then they have a quarterback's coach, a running back's coach, a receiver's coach, a tight ends coach, and an offensive line coach. And the tight ends coach, who's the offensive coordinator for an offensive head coach, is a former head coach, and it's like an offensive coordinator that helped create the modern offense that every team in college football uses right now, Kevin Wilson. So that is seven people on the offensive side of the ball to make this offense work, right? People think Brian Hartline is awesome, right? Like, great. Tony Alford is like, is a really good running backs coach, I think, right? We know all this stuff. That's, that's not seven, it's six. It's five offensive coaches and the head coach. That's six. On defense, you have Larry Johnson, Al Washington, Matt Barnes, Kerry Combs, and Parker Fleming. Parker Fleming, who's basically a special teams coach and helps out in the secondary, and it's not coached defense before. So he's not a defensive coach. So you have four. Larry Johnson, who is an excellent defensive line coach, and here's the main point I want to make is when somebody has a track record and has helped you do things, you don't give up on them after, after one bad game. Right, so I, I ran through some things a little bit. Somebody was like, what about Larry Johnson? It's like, okay. Like, we're going to go, like, one of the, we're going to call him one of the best defensive line coaches in the history of college football, and then, like, Zach Harrison and Tyreek Smith don't get a pass rush on Anthony Brown, and we're like, whoa, where's the Larry Johnson blame? And it's like, well, Larry Johnson is doing the same job he's done for 30 years at an incredibly high level, so I'm going to believe that, like, that's not really the problem, Okay. But the bottom line is, it's six versus four, and those four people, the only person who's ever been a defensive coordinator is Kerry Combs, who's a defensive coordinator for the first time. They don't have, what they need is a Kevin Wilson on defense. Kevin Wilson is like Ryan Day redundant on offense. He's an offensive-minded, longtime coordinator and former head coach. You know, but they also, now the thing is too, they had Greg Schiano, and Greg Schiano was last year kind of stunk. I mean, like Greg Schiano ran the defense in 2018 that set people's eyeballs on fire. So just because you have a track record doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. But yes, that's why the Parker Fleming hire was, it was bad. I'm not saying he's bad. I'm saying the hire's bad. He's not qualified. Just like Corey Dennis isn't qualified, but Corey Dennis has Ryan Day right behind him. Who does Parker Fleming have right behind him? Matt Barnes, who was like Maryland's special teams coach four years ago, whatever. I guess he's a good young coach. I don't know, whatever. The corners sure as heck don't know how to play run defense. I'll tell you that. These guys have no idea how to play run defense. And there's a specific thing I want to get into later. So I think there's a lot of in building. I think the biggest criticism of Ryan Day so far is some of his hires. He did not have to hire anybody on offense because he just kept Urban's whole staff. And the one position where he did have to hire, which was replacing himself, 
He hired Mike Yurcich, who lasted a year and boogied, seeming like a, a parting that both sides were happy about. And then he replaced him with Urban's son-in-law, who I don't think is qualified. So I don't think those have been good hires. On defense, he kept Larry Johnson. He hired Al Washington, which I think is a good hire, but the linebackers didn't play particularly well this week. He hired Matt Barnes, who was sort of like, you got to hire a cheap guy. So he was sort of the last man on the ship before. He hired Greg Madison to sort of steer things as an older guy. He retired and replaced him with someone who's not qualified. And he hired Jeff Halfley, who I think was a good hire, but who left after a year. And when Ryan Day had a chance to hire basically anybody in America, you know what's a great job? You know what is a great job? Defensive coordinator at Ohio State. You know who wants that job? Practically every defensive coach in America. Like, everybody's not Brent Venables. And frankly, if you gave Brent Venables $7 million, he'd take it. So he hired a guy he knew. Now, did we think, did anybody want to first? I mean, some people did. I didn't. I didn't first guess it, I don't think. Because Kerry is a great position coach and a great person. And a great Buckeye. But I don't know that in the end, why are you hiring somebody who's never done the job to do a job at Ohio State? I don't know that anybody. Now, Ryan Day also was an offensive coordinator before he got to Ohio State, right? He was a quarterback's coach in the NFL under Chip, riding Chip's coattails. You might think, and it turns out, no, he wasn't. He's a legit dude, and he was ready to be an offensive coordinator. So I think maybe he gave Kerry that same shot. And is it working? It seems like it's not working. It's a really tough spot, but Ryan Day had a chance to hire anybody he wanted, and he hired a guy he knew. And I think that is, he's got to get away from that. He has got to stop hiring guys he knows. When Urban Meyer wanted to fix this defense because he wasn't happy how things went in 2013, he didn't know Chris Ash from anybody, except he knew Chris Ash ran a great defense in Wisconsin that gave Ohio State trouble when they played Wisconsin. Then he followed Brett Bielema to Arkansas, and Urban Meyer went and stole him. So... I think that might be the point we're at, but if you're going to criticize Ryan Day for anything, I think it's his hiring practices. And I first criticized Dennis and Fleming, and I didn't first criticize Kerry as much, maybe at all. But you can see where the issue here, and Ryan has to fix it. Ryan has to make hard decisions. He has not had to make a lot of hard decisions on his staff, and it is one of the things you get paid for. And my contention is they're all out there. Ohio State has more than enough guys to have 10 good assistants on staff. But if you look at the history, the guys who have not been good, the guys that have usually get my wrath, Bill Davis, Tim Beck, those kind of guys, they get two years and they're out. They don't, you don't get a long leash to fail as an assistant coach here. And so I, I'm not going to – who doesn't love Kerry Combs as a person? But this is about the job. And if the defense doesn't get it done this year, there's no way he's back next year as defensive coordinator. No way. But Ryan also holds responsibility because this style is what Ryan wants to play. And I think the style itself might be a problem. And if you are demanding as a head coach, we're going to play this way, some guys aren't going to take the job. Because most coordinators, especially when they're on the opposite side of the ball from the head coach, they want to design the defense. They don't want to come in and play your style of defense. They want to feel in control. So if Ryan insists on playing Ryan's style, he's going to limit the pool of applicants. When at Ohio State, you should have no limit on your pool of applicants. You should have the best guy. So a lot of this is on Ryan, but the effect right now is, is Kerry the right guy for the job? Ryan's the guy who put him in that job, but Kerry's the guy who is in sort of, you know, in the spotlight right now because of the play of this defense. 
you pointed this out in what you wrote, but there was sort of a perfect storm in a positive way for Day with the Jeff Halfley hire. He could hire someone he knew who was a believer in that scheme. And then on top of all that, they had Chase Young and Jeff Fakuda and how many, like, what was it, 10 NFL draft picks on that defense in 2019? And, like, And that, that's only so far. That doesn't even count the guys like Haskell Garrett, who, who had snaps on that defense right. who were going to be picks. But, yeah, 10, 10, Chase plus 10, so 11 overall so far. Right. And I, I wonder how much that experience skewed the perspective and led to some of the decisions that came after that. You understand? Like, did they take for granted, maybe especially from a talent standpoint, did they take for granted, you know, you can hire Kerry Combs to come in and sort of be the guy who can coordinate the defense, but then also recruit and coach up the secondary. Cause they knew, I think that that was going to be an issue with all of the talent that they were losing in the secondary and that there was going to be enough talent that you weren't going to have to scheme things up in a crazy way that the, the Ohio State's talent would keep coming through. I, as I watch this team play, and I, as I watch the way that they approach scheming a defense, I do wonder sometimes if they have just overestimated the talent that they have on the field right now. Because I'm looking at this defense, and I'm like, I don't care what these guys – again, this is where when I said one time stars don't matter, this is what I was talking about, because I kind of don't care what they were ranked coming out of high school. Like, who would you rank as like – I think Haskell Garrett is like a top 100 player in college football right now. I think I would adamantly say that. I don't know if there's anybody else in this defense that's a top 100 player in college football right now. No, but I think, but I think you're making the opposite point of what you're thinking because the whole point is they don't have enough five stars. It's not that they have a bunch of five stars running around and they're not playing well. In 2017 and 2018, those two classes, so a lot of the 17 guys are gone, and then some of the 18 guys are here. And to that point are Teron Vincent and Taraja Mitchell making plays and saving defenses the way you would expect them. But in 2017 and 2018, they had 13 players on defense in those two recruiting classes who were ranked among the top 100 overall players in the country, okay? In the 2019 and 2020 classes, which are your third-year and second-year players right now, they have two. Two defensive recruits who are ranked among the top 100 players in the country. I think it's Zach Harrison and Cody Simon. And so. It's a talent issue. Like, it's, it's the idea, like, yeah, yeah. like yeah, actually, the point is stars do matter. Because you know who played great? The five-star Oregon linebacker, who was by far, Noah Sewell was by far the best linebacker in that game. Show me Ohio State's Noah Sewell. You know what? They don't have one because they don't have a five-star linebacker. So, I've seen enough. Now, listen. Yes, well, we all know James Lornitis and A.J. Hawk and some of these guys pop. But sometimes it's great talents that pop. They don't have enough defensive – they don't have enough raw defensive talent and those 18 guys that we were waiting for, the class of 2018 guys that we were waiting for, are not changing games. Teron Vincent and Taraja Mitchell and Seven Banks and Cam, Cam Brown played pretty well. Those guys, they didn't – Josh Proctor, who, again, was hurt, whatever, that affects it. You get a couple – Tyreek Johnson is in that mix, right? Tyreek Johnson, who's gone. He's a five-star who then was recruited by Kerry Combs and then – didn't develop under Kerry Combs because Kerry Combs left and now he's at Nebraska. Like if Tyree, if you had a five-star, if you, if Tyree Johnson was out there playing like Marshawn Lattimore, you'd be in a much better spot. So to that point, that's a miss, but these 19 and 20 guys, they don't have enough talent in their third year and second year defensive players. And it's showing up. 
No, and, and I, I, I 100% agree with that. I'm just saying that there are also those other guys, and you just mentioned some of them, and, and I put Zach Harrison in that list too, that also aren't, I don't think, playing to the expectation. They were supposed to be the guys who are doing this now, and they're not. Hey, so it's one thing. I did not do like a hardcore track every play rewatch. What was I eating? I, I like the uh, – Eat the Cheetos puffs ever? You get the puffs. I think the puffs are better than the actual Cheetos. I don't like Cheetos that much, but I do like cheese puffs. Yeah, no, the puff. Sometimes you get a good puff. I'll eat a. I'll eat a bag. I'll eat a half a bag of puffs at night if I'm watching a game at night, just with a bag of puffs besides me. I like to let Dougie time. I like to let them like sort of dissolve in my mouth. Like I don't even necessarily crunch them. I like to let them kind of get soggy and just like turn into a just 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 disintegrate in my mouth. I like to let them get soggy. Buckeye talk. Completely agree. If you want to come over sometime and just let puffs get soggy in our mouths together, let me know. So I had that. So I wasn't, I wasn't doing like the hardcore, hard, hardcore rewatch, but it did not feel like the defensive line affected the quarterback that much. And it wasn't necessarily like that. Anthony Brown was getting the ball out of his hands in half a second every time either. And so that's part of it. Now, listen, part of the thing, too, when we were sort of talking about the scheme before, when Kerry Combs was here before, they played a lot of press man and four-man pressure, right, and let, let great defensive ends get after the quarterback and let great, talented cornerbacks say, we dare you to beat us. Go ahead. Play two high safeties behind them. And so there's certainly been a history at Ohio State of, like, just what's your defensive scheme? Our defensive scheme is we have more talent than you do. What do you mean what our defensive scheme? But And then it's a bad combination. It's, it's a very similar conversation to what we had last year, Nathan. If your scheme's pretty simple, but you're, at, you're asking elite players to do simple things and play fast, that is a strategy, but it relies on talent. Right. If you're asking lesser talented players to do simple things, well, then sometimes it shows up. But there are some, there are some, there's a very specific thing where you can see the mistake by the player. And to, to Kerry's credit, he kept saying, it's not the player's fault. When, we, when I say we need to play better, I'm not talking about the players. About, I'm talking about us coaching them better. Coaching them up is different than the scheme. There were moments when guys didn't do the right thing, and it's not necessarily the scheme fault. I think it's connected. Once you do the wrong thing a couple times, you better change what you're doing because they're just not going to do it right, and they didn't change it quickly enough. But the initial mistakes are like, well, I think that probably should have worked. The guy just did it wrong. Yeah, I mean, well, okay, so, again, now that we've rewatched the game, I think we should just go to, like, the one that was, like, repeatedly killed Ohio State in this game. Let's, let's take a break. We're going to come back to it. We're going to talk about the, the edge containment and why that still has me so perplexed as to what Ohio State was doing in response to that because I don't understand. I understand kind of why it could happen once, why it happens four times boggles my mind. You're listening to Buckeye Talk. All right, we're back from break. I can't remember if I already hit the text, but it's 614-350-3315. Doug, you were sending out texts this morning, having rewatched the game, and kind of sending out some clips of plays that you were talking about or screen grabs. And we were going over these, what was it, four different times where Oregon just crushed Ohio State on the edge uh, because Ohio State did not react correctly to the play that was happening. Um, and all of them were leading the touchdowns for, for Oregon. And reading back, looking back over the game, I think what, what struck me was, okay, I kind of, the first time it happens, 
Um, I'm trying to remember who it was on the first occasion. Who was line, Somebody was lined up over a tight end. They followed the tight end inside on the route. That blocks off the linebacker and then doesn't give the other backer a chance to come over in time. And then with Bryson Shaw over the top of the play, he's simply not going to be fast enough to get over there and close and cut off the play, and it's a touchdown. It's like a textbook example of what that play is supposed to do. If you're an offensive coordinator, you would love to dial it up and say, that's exactly what a team who's never seen that before, that's what, that's what that play should do to that team. I think the frustrating part for fans and the thing that I can't understand is how then there isn't a discussion on the sideline reminding Ohio State's whole defense how to not have that happen again, and it just kept happening over and over. So listen, this is always a little iffy territory. I'm not a coach. I was definitely texting with at least one coach high school coach on text today. And, and if you're on text and you have football knowledge that you want to share, I love that stuff. So, uh, but Tyvis Powell was talking about this on Twitter during the game. And I think Kerry Combs and Ryan Day both referenced the concept in the post-game press conference that they call it crack and replace. That if you are in man coverage and you're a corner or maybe a linebacker and you have coverage on a receiver or a tight end on the outside, and that tight end or receiver comes off the line and it looks like he's running a slant inside and you're in man coverage. So you've got to go with him, but he's not actually running a route. He's going inside to crack down and block the linebacker there. A linebacker who has the responsibility for what's happening in the run game or the quick pass game on the outside. So if you just go with your receiver that you're covering or your tight end that you're recovering, if you just follow him while he's blocking the linebacker, it's like he's blocking two guys. Because he's, he's not blocking you. He's going to block somebody else, and you're just following him. And actually, so, the, the offensive player ends up blocking – or I'm sorry, the defensive player kind of ends up blocking – You get the it other you even more the way. You help the, – yes, you help the offensive player block the linebacker. So they call it crack and replace where you have to recognize that as the guy who has man coverage say, hey, this isn't a pass. My guy is going to block somebody else. I must now replace the blocked player – in this outside run duty responsibility because he's getting blocked. And I watched some, listen, it's what I do when I'm eating cheese puffs. I'm I, please, I'm not trying to pretend, but I was watching some stuff online about how they teach it, right? You're supposed to like push off your offensive player that you're guarding and propel yourself out to replace. Right? So yeah, I thought there were three very specific times where it happened twice. It's legend Cavazos. Like I don't, it, it's, I said sort of generally on the pod, it feels like, there are plays happening around Legend Cavazos that are going poorly. He did. There's two very clear times where he's the outside coverage guy. He follows in man. He does not replace. And the one run outside, then the, Bryson Shaw freezes a little bit at safety. Freezes like thinking it's an inside run, even though there's not much of a fake there, and he's late to the party. And so there's not a guy making up, making like a a great play on his own. But it's really that outside corner responsibility so it's legend Cavazos twice who again Nathan we have to ask about this on Tuesday I know we will Ryan Watts started in Minnesota didn't play against Oregon legend Cavazos played a small to medium amount in Minnesota and played a small to medium amount again against Oregon but in important situations and he has been I think incorrect in his run responsibilities multiple times in both games so why is legend Cavazos still out there why didn't Ryan Watts play like I don't why is Legend Cavazos is having trouble with this? Why is he still out there? So I do think the initial mistake the first time is player and the coaching of the technique. The fact that they don't change the scheme and let Legend Cavazos get beaten the same way again 
That is not Kerry Combs not adjusting the call on defense. And then the other time it happened is it was Naoteote had coverage on a tight end. That's the clip I sent to people. Craig Young, as the bullet, follows a receiver in in motion. When the tight end goes inside to crack down on Tommy Eichenberg, Craig Young is sort of also right there. So he sort of blocks Craig Young by accident, also blocks Tommy Eichenberg, and then Neoteote just stays with him. And that's the fourth and one option pitch for the touchdown. It's like, why was that so wide open? One Oregon guy basically blocked three players for Ohio State. There's one guy, three blocks, and then Bryson Shaw is, is a little late, and it's over. And there's literally nobody else there. And then also it did feel like the ends were crashing down really hard in a way that, like, is that the call? Because it sure didn't look like they were reading much, and they were just crashing inside and leaving that edge open. So the end's not there. Two, two, all three linebackers, the bullet and the two other linebackers, all got blocked by one guy, and the safety's late to the party, and you get a walk-in 25-yard touchdown on a fourth and one. But, it, but it's that technique. So that's, that's the question, right? It is a very specific technique that how often do we hear coaches like reference sort of techniques like that in the post game? Not very often. They talked about it because it was such a problem and it was repeated. And again, they do it to the short side of the field. So there's less help there. So you're talking about if you're wiping out the three linebackers and the end is crashing down, that's four players. And if the safety is late to the party, that's five. And then the other six defenders are on the other side of the field and it's over. I would say one of the things that we did not talk about enough coming into this game was Joe Moorhead. I think we mentioned it. I think we, in retrospect, it probably should have been a bigger part of our conversation. That's on me as much as anybody. I mean, Joe Moorhead was, when he was the offensive coordinator at Penn State, he was the reason Justin Fields committed to Penn State initially. Um, He wasn't going to follow him to Mississippi State, I think, for academic reasons as much as anything. Uh, And and as as Justin Fields' career uh, progressed he was looking higher than that anyway but that's why he almost ended up at Penn State I think there's always been a lot of respect for Joe Moorhead as an offensive mind uh, he was in the mix to be a uh, Purdue head coach when they hired Jeff Brom so it's a guy who's been around and known in Big Ten circles and beyond as a guy who knows how to scheme on offense and as I watch this rewatch this game it this looked to me like just a perfect example of a guy who watched one game of film and saw here's a vulnerability here's a vulnerability and we're going to attack that. And then when they, when Ohio State doesn't respond to that, it's like, well, I'm going to make you prove that you're going to respond to that and adjust and make that play the next time. And on too many occasions, it really, it just comes down to just like a handful of, of times in this game. Because when I rewatch this game, there's everybody is really ripping the single high safety thing. And I wanted to talk about that because how many times when you rewatch this game, did it jump out to you that a second safety would have answered the problem that the defense had on that play. Oh, I don't know. A decent, I thought a decent amount of time. Did you think not that? I don't know that it would have necessarily made a difference on these plays that we're talking about. I think part of it is when you only have one safety deep and he's a little bit more toward the middle of the field and you're asking the safety as the last line of defense in the run game to take care of stuff, you're the only guy. And now you've kind of got to cover sideline to sideline, whether it's a wide run or a run up the middle. If you have two safeties back, you have two guys who can make tackles there. And clearly, I don't think they're getting a lot of bang for the buck out of the extra guy in the box. 
I thought Ronnie Hickman was slow to the edge at times. Because, listen, you've still got to cover um, – I mean, if you're going to play a second deep safety, it's, it's one of those things. Because they're walking down that cover safety, Lathan Ransom, in a lot of, like, man coverage right on top of the receiver at the line of scrimmage. Mm-hmm. So he really is locked up in, in a lot of man stuff, and is, it is not at all back as a safety valve, right? And back in 2014, if Vaughn Bell at times would have had responsibility – for maybe some coverage on a slot receiver. It may have been in more of a zone look where you're passing some guys off. The outside linebacker is also helping there. So, like, depending what that slot receiver does off the snap, Von Bell is not so obsessed with that guy that he can't help with anything else. So they have that cover safety spot, and then, the, the, you know, that bullet winds up covering the back out of the backfield a lot, but I think they were slow to it. I think they're, like, not getting – benefit of not having a second deep safety but they are being hurt by not having a second deep safety so if you're not getting the benefit then just put the guy back there and keep take away explosive plays i think if i think if bryson shaw is covering half the field instead of the whole field as a deep safety he might get out there and make a tackle on the edge a little bit and then i know landis and his piece at the athletic broke it down specifically that run up the middle for 77 yards why is Bryson Shaw there? It takes a little bit of a banana angle, but he's not in the middle of the field. He's kind of at a hash, and there's nobody else. Like, there's literally nobody else. How can that be? It's pretty simple. They just get to the second level and make a couple blocks. I want to ask Ryan Day specifically about that play. It's like a linebacker gets sucked out. The other linebacker goes in one gap, and there's nobody in that gap where C.J. Verdell hits it up the middle and it's like the way it's designed, it feels like, well, the safety will make this tackle. Except the safety's off to the side at one hash. The, line, the running back did nothing on that play exceptional, except run to wide open spaces. It, that can't be right. How can that be the plan? So I, I just – I don't know. They want to stop the run, man, but they didn't stop the run. And they, they couldn't keep big plays. So I just – I don't like it. And I feel like once you get to Trevor Lawrence, you're going to play two deep safeties anyway because you have to help in the pass game, as they did when they played Trevor Lawrence. Like, oh, look, Marcus Williamson's doing something he's never done the whole year. That's a cool thing for a playoff game. So it's like, why don't you just do it now? Just do it now. So the other thing that happened in this game, though, like I th- they were actually playing a decent amount of snaps where there were two high safeties pre-snap. Because that bullet would rotate back, yes. Right. Um, and now, and then sometimes that you're right, that they would, then somebody would walk up. Um, sometimes it's even Bryson Shaw walking up into the box and, and being the second guy there. There were times when they were having, they were playing two high safeties, but it was sort of a staggered look. Right. And one guy was at like a medium level and one guy was mm-hmm. the deep guy. So they were giving some different looks with two safeties back. I, I think you're right. I understand what you're saying. And I wonder if, again, it goes back to how spoiled they were in 2019 because Kerry Combs comes in yesterday and says, like, hey, this scheme has worked. It's had, it's had good success here, and we believe in it. But it, it didn't work in 2020. Like, I mean, I, let me state this back. Their high safety play didn't work in 2020. They had bad high safety play all season. And the, and the cover safety play wasn't especially good in 2020. Um, and it worked in 2019 for the most part because they had Jordan Fuller, a guy who was underappreciated at the time and is now like a captain in his second year in the NFL and is doing uh, really, really good things. And I think with, with a Josh Proctor, I think I'm not sure that the single high safety couldn't work, but I, I will say that now that it looks like it's going to be Bryson Shaw and then question mark 
at safety now. Like, I don't know what they do at safety. And I think you do have to probably abandon this single high concept and go to something more traditional because I, there, I think you're right. I don't, he's not the guy that has the necessary skills to cover that kind of ground by himself. You know, we'll see what they do. It's another great line of questioning for this week. Like, could you, if you feel like, I mean, Marcus Williamson's played back some, right? Lathan Ransom, as Steven mentioned on the pod, was really recruited to be more of a deep safety, and they've made him a cover safety. But if you think Cam Martinez and Marcus Williamson could handle that, could you make, could you slide Lathan Ransom back? Can Court Williams get involved here? Part of it, too, is, you know, Ronnie Hickman, yes, sliding back there sometimes, but Ronnie Hickman is basically playing linebacker 75% of the time. So then when he slides back to be a deep safety, is he as good at that as when they had Tyvis, uh, Tyvis Powell and Vaughn Bell as their two safeties who were back there together for a lot of things? I don't, I don't know. But, yeah, they could sure use Jordan Battle, <laughs> right? I mean, it's one of those things. They just – but Josh Proctor's a top 100 recruit. And, by the way – you know, the play, the ser- they, they open the second half, Bryson Shaw's at deep safety. They give up the long TD run. The next series, Josh Proctor's in there, and Josh Proctor sticks his face in someone's chest and makes a tackle on a play that uh, in a, with a different guy in the field might have popped. And it was like, oh, that's what that's supposed to look like. And so now he's out, we assume. So that's a tough spot. I wrote a piece before the season basically posing the question, can he – take this like inconsistent flashes of greatness and turn it into the consistency that eraser the house state needs. And I really think he was trending in that direction. I think he was like on the cusp of that. We were seeing it in the results of these games. He was coming up and making tackles. And I thought Josh Proctor was kind of becoming the player he was always supposed to be. Well, that actually, I wouldn't even say that because he wasn't recruited to be that, but he was becoming what Ohio state needed him to be. The thing Ohio state needed him to be to have a good defense in 2021. And, um, we, we received no word, but I, I would be surprised if he plays again anytime soon and maybe not at all the rest of the season because that did not look good. Yeah, it's a tough injury. It's, it's a, he, he, he is a very, I think, dynamic player in a lot of ways, right? I think, you, you know, I don't know if Jordan Fuller was dynamic, but he sure was reliable. So I think what you were talking about, they were trying to make sure they found reliability within that sort of electric playmaker stuff, and he did seem like he was getting to that point, and now here we are. It's really unfortunate for him. And for the defense, too. Yeah. A question from the 937. Um, it seems like defensive coordinators went to work on how to confuse quarterbacks and limit big plays to make teams beat you with consistency, which I would argue also is what Oregon did. Ohio State didn't have many big plays, but essentially my argument is that man-slash-cover-three zone defenses are too easy to expose against spread RPO. College football is evolving that way, and OSU is behind the times. So, I mean, we're getting some of those, a lot of those questions that are like, so what schematic change should Ohio State make? Do you think it is as easy as going to the making that schematic change to go to the second high safety? Or is, is there something else that needs to be involved here? There was a lot of talk on the broadcast about how not that Ohio State's scheme is too simple, but that it looks they, – they, they are too – they too static. seldom change it. Yes, they're too static. That what you see before the snap as a quarterback is what you see after the snap as a quarterback. There were some times that, you know, we were getting a lot of uh, – I'm seeing a lot of chatter about how often Ohio State blitzes. I'm not saying they couldn't blitz more. I saw it, several instances of players blitzing, but they're just slow players who don't get there. 
like Tommy Eichenberg blitzing around the edge doesn't get really anywhere close. There were other times where they showed blitz and then backed off in coverage, which has its place in the game. That's a strategy that that can benefit you. And there was one where um, I think it was Kayvon Pope, like almost reached up and smacked one. And, and Steven had yeah. another one he pointed out where there was an also pick, almost a pick. So that was almost working at times. But I think that to me is more, I mean, if you stayed in single high and had somebody you trusted at the back end, which which is a big if right now, if you did that, but then also just approached in a more aggressive or less static way, could that also just, could that be the fix? Oh, no. I mean, that's absolutely part of it. And it's funny. It's one of those things. Listen, we're at the game and we're watching, right? I got my binoculars. We're all, we're all lined up there. We're watching stuff. I love trying to maybe see things that aren't on TV or double checking stuff with that, that big, uh, big picture look. But you guys at home are all absorbing the game. Most of you that have the national broadcast on and don't have the Ohio State radio broadcast accompanying it, you're all absorbing it the same way. And then it's funny how stuff is reflected because we don't hear Gus and Joel. And then we come back and listen to the rewatch and Joel Klatt all game is talking about how their defense is too static. They don't offer a different look post-snap than they do pre-snap. And then it's like we go in the text and it's like, why doesn't the defense? It's like, oh, you guys all absorb this the same way. And I thought Joel was all over it. Like, I'm not making like – I'm like, well, you know, that helps us too, Joel. I mean, Joel played quarterback at Colorado. I didn't play quarterback at Colorado. I played I played golf and tennis at Palmyra Area High School. So, like, listen, man, like, I'm trusting Joel here. That is a lot of it. But also, Nathan, you know what you can't do? You know what, you know what makes it a little more difficult to sort of rotate your safeties and do something? different pre-snap than you do post-snap you know what makes it hard when you're playing a bunch of young guys yeah and you and when you're playing a million guys so it's one of those things it's like hey why don't they why don't they play a fancier defense and it's like well okay they're kind of playing a simple defense and they're not executing that like they can't they can't do the thing to prevent a guy from running wide open on the edge with kind of a basic concept and you want them to change up their looks, to confuse the quarterback, they would likely only confuse themselves. So if you're Kerry Combs, I think if you told Kerry Combs, Kerry, this is too simple. Why aren't you more complex? I think you would say, did you see what they did with the simple stuff? And you want to be more complicated if you got him in a private room, right? Yeah, yeah. Now. I think that's that, a fair rebuttal, frankly. I that, think it is. I know fans don't want to hear that, but I think that's fair. It doesn't absolve. Carrie, Carrie's got to find a way. Listen, they got a lot of good football players here. Are they at the defense? Are they at the talent and experience standard on defense that Ohio State is accustomed to? No. Do they have probably better defensive players than Iowa, who looks awesome so far? Yes. Iowa looks awesome. Iowa's giving people lots of trouble. Iowa forced four turnovers yesterday. They're scheming it up right. But, you know, this is um, – I mean, even on defense – Nathan, it's funny. So there's like a lot of super seniors, right? Even like Ohio State has, you didn't think Olave was back. Munford to super senior. Garrett is one, right? Haskell Garrett is the guy that you didn't think would be here defensively, but is here. But they don't really have any others. Like they didn't, like there's not. And like, you know, the linebackers who are, you know, are veteran haven't played because they were blocked and the corners and we're running in and out, you know, it's like, they're in between a little bit, man. They're in between a little bit. So it's like I kind of want them to play some more younger guys. It's like, what should we do? <laughs> play younger guys. Okay, play younger guys and then change the look post-snap every game, every time with Jordan Hancock on the field? Uh, no, that's probably not it either. 
Well, I think you astutely asked the, the question many times over the past couple of years as we were looking ahead to this season. And we're like, well, this will be the year that like Taraja Mitchell and Kayvon Pope and Dallas Gantt just inherit those linebacker spots. You know who's not playing a whole lot right now? Dallas Gantt and Kayvon Pope. And actually, I think Taraja Mitchell has played pretty well, but not as. I think he should probably even play more than he has. He's one of the guys that I, I've wondered a couple times, like, why is he not on the field in this particular situation? He is not, he is not in their third down defense. Kayvon Pope comes in, I think, for Taraja Mitchell. And it's often, I think, Pope and Simon on third down. So that's a lot of stuff with coverage. I don't know that Taraja is like the most athletic guy in the world. So like in space, yeah. right? Maybe he's not the right guy to have out there on third down. But, but I think and, that's an issue that because that can hurt you on early downs too if he's not that kind of player. If you don't have a player at linebacker that demands to be on the field. They've had that for the last few years and they don't right now. They – and a lot of it is what you're asked to do. Some defenses are more set up for linebackers to kind of play downhill and get after stuff. And some defenses are more set up for linebackers to sort of read and react and wait and that you end up catching guys in holes after the fact you're not attacking. And so, um, you know, maybe they're just doing what they're asked. But it felt to me like Noah Sewell was getting after people on Saturday in a way that the Ohio state linebackers don't get after people. And, and maybe it's the difference of the defensive styles, or maybe that's just an elite guy. We're going to take another break. We're going to come back and keep breaking this down here on Buckeye talk. Back on Buckeye talk, answering your questions about Ohio state's 35, 28 loss to Oregon on this Monday madness episode. This is from the four one nine. A while back, you did a show where you went through depth chart position by position. It was based on what you thought the coaches would do. Now that you've seen a few games, did they get it right? Who would you start based on the last two games? This is really that's mostly a defensive question because on yeah. offense, I think the, the, the starting lineup isn't really the question. It's really interesting. Can you imagine if – and to Stephen's credit, I meant to say this in the postgame pod and I didn't. Stephen um, – I think his outrageous prediction for the Minnesota game was about like Jackson Smith and the Jigba going nuts or whatever. And it's like, it kind of didn't work out that way because, you know, parts didn't have many plays. And then like we saw against Oregon, the Jackson Smith and the Jigba that Steven was kind of waiting to go nuts, right? He went nuts. Can you imagine if the defense had a Jackson Smith and the Jigba had a second year player who was like, holy moly. Can you imagine if they had that? I, I don't see it right now. Oh no. I don't see it. And when you go through the recruiting and you fall in love with all the receivers they have and all, you know, some great interior, Donovan Jackson's here. I'm not, it is not the same. So I don't know. Is Should Cody Simon play more? Steven said he thought Cody Simon played well. In rewatching it, as you said, Nathan, Cody Simon was kind of a guy who was on the field for stuff that went wrong. I mean, Cody Simon got locked in coverage on one play with a tight end outside and on a third down throw played really good sort of man coverage, like almost like he was a corner. And he deserves a lot of credit for that. I didn't think Cody Simon, like on a play-to-play basis, was was like controlling the game the way Noah Sewell felt like he was controlling the game. Yeah. So who would I play at linebacker? I don't exactly know. And again, it's the, the craziest thing about this, Nathan, as we say all this stuff, the outside corners seem to play pretty well. So the thing that we almost thought would have been the, the, the most problematic thing, I do not think Denzel Burke and Cam Brown are very high on our list. The outside receivers for them did nothing. Their number one receiver didn't have a catch. So 
like if I think going into the year, if you said out oh, the defense is a problem, I think we might have had outside corner pretty high on the list, especially if you said seven banks isn't going to take a snap in the first two games. It's not that they're not getting much push up front. They are not affecting the quarterback. There are too many holes for the running backs. And then the linebackers are not, are not making plays, man. So, but I, I don't know who I could tell you should read Carrico play more. He's like a top 100 recruit who's a freshman linebacker is Reed Carrico the solution and again I said maybe Neoteote is a solution he looked a little lost at times on Saturday which isn't well, his fault sure. but they put him out there right. that's how bad it was they put him out there in, in situations as you said Nathan when he might have been sort of like working with the fourth team in practice because they didn't know if he was going to be eligible yeah I mean there was one play um this is right before right before Oregon scored on the on the this might have been the, actually the lineman that was on the field for the fourth down the fourth and one touchdown where as you point out Craig Young gets pinned inside and and blocks off and or Neotote gets pinned inside and blocks off three guys um but I mean Neotote is out there Steel Chambers is out there Craig Young is out there uh, Tommy Eichenberg is out there so that's four spots where you've got you know a guy who wasn't a linebacker two months ago Eichenberg modest recruiting profile Craig Young also modest recruiting profile I know that we've like talked about him from like how intriguing he is from a uh, from a just like size and skill and speed standpoint but still like a long-term project guy I mean a guy who based on his recruiting rankings that's a guy who usually just ends up at Purdue or Indiana coming out of Fort Wayne you know what I mean mm-hmm. um, not usually the guy that Ohio State is counting on to, to help them win a game and then um, and then Neotote who's been out of practice and stuff so and then and then uh, JTT was on the field for that snap a guy who's you know, a very recent addition to this program. So, I mean, that's, that's what I think has surprised me that I, I didn't think we would be getting two games into the season and still be getting such crucial points of a game mm-hmm. where you have that many players on field, that much of a percentage of your defensive alignment is guys who you were surprised were playing kind of at all in, in some ways. And the other thing I would mention though, is like, yes, I understand you're kind of longing for a, a Jackson Smith and Jigma to emerge on this defense. But what, what helps Jackson Smith and Jigba emerge on offense is Chris Olave and Garrett yeah. Wilson. And there surely isn't sure. that on this defense right now. That's the other thing. Like if, so if seven banks can come back and man, I really wish like Ryan day just won't talk about seven banks. I tried to ask him about it post game yesterday. I asked it in correlation with the Josh Parker question. He just kind of sent his prayers to Josh Parker did not answer the seven banks half of that. He hasn't been on the availability report. He's been dressed. He's been down on the field and they're just not playing him. So I don't know what the issue is there, but he, he's not playing for this football team right now. And that's a question I think that needs to be answered better because if you put him on the field, even if he just plays as well as he did last year, I think it changes things for this defense. He can come up and make some of those stops against the run mm. that Legend Cavazos can't. Or by a domino effect, whoever you bump over makes those stops against the run better than Legend Cavazos can, right? So I I, I understand what you're saying, but it's also – the players who could like, who are supposed to be the top flight, like first string guys who step up and make those plays aren't there either, which I think is the Jackson Smith, the Jigba, the Jackson Smith, the Jigba, the defense is being asked to do things that the one on offense isn't. They're being asked to like shoulder more of the load than the one on offense is. And like we're saying Denzel Burke and Cam Brown played pretty well, but legend Cavazos was on the field at corner instead of one of those guys on crucial plays that went wrong. And if Seven Banks was playing or if Ryan Watts was playing, 
then maybe you wouldn't be down to that. Again, it's like, I think ideally, right? It, it, it felt like we, that Legend Cavazos is like their sixth corner. Because like in game one, it was Banks and Brown didn't play. Watts and Burke started and DeMario got in the game before Legend did. So then what is that? Okay, well, then he's your sixth corner. But then he's out there. He's out there on two of their big touchdowns, sort of not handling his run responsibilities, right? So I don't – so Burke and Brown played okay, but they weren't on the field. So if Banks was on the field, then maybe Banks starts, so then that bumps down Burke, who then he can be on the field when Cavazos is there. I don't know. I don't mean to put this all on Legend Cavazos, but the point is that's a guy who's like a recruit in the 300s who's a second-year guy who didn't get much experience last year and is on the field at crucial situations against a top 15 opponent that Ohio State lost to. And that is not typically the case that Ohio State would be putting an inexperienced second-year guy who's a recruit in the 300s in that spot. And the reason they're doing it is because they're a step short still from a talent standpoint on defense. And maybe a year from now, that'll be Ja'Kalen Johnson and Jordan Hancock, but it's not right now. And you're not putting it on Legend Cavazos. They are, either because out of necessity, right. because of injury or whatever, or because of their um, misinterpretation of what he can do on a football field right now. Anything else you want to get into on defense? Uh, we do have – there's some offensive questions and C.J. Stroud things I wanted to get into. No, I'm good. Okay. Um, a lot of, obviously, a lot of responses about C.J. Stroud. And we had a big, a deep conversation about that on the postgame pod and um, really got kind of abstract with it and started talking yeah. about 2022 already. And there were already people who were thinking along those lines a little bit. Were uh, there any people in Texas that said, shut up, Doug, about that no, stuff? I, I think there were actually – I mean, here, here's – it was more the other way. In fact, here's an example from the 310. Hey, guys, not sure why you apologized for the last part of Saturday's pod. It was the best part. The story of this season is finding a special QB – among the four highly ranked options, the context and analysis was spot on. I think it's important to remind everyone that the stated goal isn't to find a good Big Ten quarterback, which I have often used as like a, an insult to somebody to say that they're a good <laughs> Big Ten quarterback, but to win a national championship. Can C.J. Stroud beat Alabama? Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. I think C.J. is a good player, nice guy, and I wish him nothing but happiness, but he's not special. If Ryan Day is a schematic wizard, then any of our quarterbacks should be good enough to win the next four games. Let's please find out if we have anyone special on this roster. No, CJ didn't lose the game, but he sure didn't win it when he had the opportunity to do so. And I, there was another, I didn't pull this response out, but somebody else kind of came to my defense. Steve and I are having a little bit of an argument saying like, you got to play Kyle McCord the next couple of weeks and see what he does against real competition. Because this yeah. defense, this de what did he really get to show against this defense? And what did C.J. Stroud get to show against his defense in practice when guys were missing, when you're not playing real speed football? I mean, one, one thing that jumped out to me today, this is getting away from the quarterback thing, but it, it, it maybe puts things a little bit more in context. The play where C.J. Stroud threw a dart over the middle to Cade Stover, and Cade Stover gets his hands on the ball, and it gets just, just whatever drilled in the side and I'm like that has to be I'm I'm sure that is the first time Kate Stover has ever tried to catch a pass from a Big Ten quarterback while another power five human being is blasting in his back like that like they don't play contact like that in practice I don't think like when has he ever had to make a catch through contact and he doesn't hold on a lot of guys wouldn't maybe Jamie Ruckett would have I don't know but it kind of it, it was another like reminder of that this offense it, when like you've got guys on this offense trying to make plays 
that are, are being put in that position for the first time and are maybe a little bit extended. I would like to, we can maybe make this, I'd like when we have things we do on Buckeye Talk. Could we have texters send in names of like good Big Ten quarterbacks who were only that and that we could insult each other by calling each other that? Like if I said, Nathan Baird, you are nothing but a Jeff Smoker to me, right? Or why don't you take your Kyle Orton looking face and get out of here? And I'll do it in a French accent because I think that's the most insulting accent, right? You, sir, remind me of nothing more than a Juice Williams. Be gone with you, right? But there's so many of them. And I'll do them all. I'll do them all in a, uh, uh, you disgust me, Mr. Tony Saka, right? How many? Name that mediocre Big Ten quarterback. Well, then the added, question? And then they added Rutgers and Maryland to this league who didn't even have yeah. quarterbacks at that level. <laughs> you, you, Art Sitkowski, only dream of being a Kyle Orton. They, they um, do. They do. I actually, Kyle Orton is right. actually pretty good compared to some of these guys you mentioned. Kyle Orton like playing in the NFL. No, I know. Yeah. I know. Um, seriously, what was the question? <laughs> the question was sort of just let, – let's use this as a way to just bounce into what did we see when we rewatch this game in terms yeah. of – DJ Stroud. Yeah. So, I mean, like he, you can just see stuff. Listen, it's like, you've got to be on point all the time. The first drive. And I apologize. I realized I talked about some things out of order uh, on the post game pod. Cause like the, the, the stuff gets mixed up in your head. The first miss on the fourth down, he had a wide open on the first drive. He had wide open Jackson Smith, the Jigba for a first down on third down and just missed him. And then on fourth down, he threw down the middle to Crystal Lave, who like didn't really look open and it was just an incompletion. And it's kind of like, well, that didn't really seem to work. But that, right? was, a, that, that was a weird play too. Yes. Olave was his deepest option. It was fourth and seven at the Oregon 31. And Olave, there were like four guys running routes on that play. And Olave is the only one who, by design, ran a route past the sticks. I but don't I, understand what was happening there. I did think he had Wilson in the flat on the move that if he would have hit him, Wilson would have gotten the first down. Maybe. And yeah. so some of that is like you get a guy in the move and we're going to get – we're going to rely on the, on the pass catcher to get the last three yards, right? So, so that was just like a miss. It's like, is it the end of the world? It's like, no, but on that drive, you come away with nothing with two throws from the quarterback that are kind of like, oh, I don't know exactly what that was. And then he just missed enough other throws that mattered over the course of the game. And he did make some throws. He certainly did. He had a moment where he missed Chris Olave on a deep ball that really, boy, that would have helped. And he just missed him by a little bit. And then the next play, he comes back and hits Chris Olave on the other side of the field, like 35 yards down the field on a tougher throw. Olave is less open than he was on the previous throw, but he makes it. It's a great catch by Olave. It's a great throw by Stroud. So he comes right back. But, you know, I just thought that they needed a little bit more. And I did not dissuade myself from my initial postgame reaction of, that guy, that guy made some good plays, but I just wonder about the special factor. And it's just hard, man, because you get in equal talent games and you need your quarterback to make two or three plays that aren't there, right? And I just don't know how many times so far this year C.J. Stroud has made a play that isn't there. I mean, most of the time it's like, hey, just make the plays that are there. And that's okay. They needed plays that weren't there Saturday and it's a lot to ask of a second year of a, se- a guy making a second start. I understand that, but it does make me wonder about 
the future. I'm repeating myself, but like, I just don't know that for sure he'll make those plays in start seven and start 17. You know, somebody else, a texter, I don't know if I pulled it out, but they, they mentioned that this game reminded them of how mad they were last year that McCord and Stroud and Miller, or not McCord, just Stroud and Miller didn't get reps in games yeah. last year. Didn't, and you saw that. I, I almost mentioned that earlier on the defense that, you know, you can, there are times when you watch this defense and you think, oh, that should have happened last year in the fourth quarter or third quarter against Nebraska or Rutgers or whatever. It shouldn't be happening here. If it had happened then, maybe they could have fixed it. But that guy should have made that mistake then instead of having to be on the field now playing for the first time making that mistake now. I think there are an argument to be made that, that some of that lack of – and it was, again, they didn't have much margin for error there. They only played five regular season games. But that, that lack of opportunity is still coming back to bite them uh, in some ways. And I think you, your analysis of Stroud is still fair because, again, rewatching this game, I, I also saw some, some nice throws that he made. Um, some nice plays that he made. Uh, the one thing I did wonder about, he does not seem comfortable throwing on the run. Nope. He does not seem comfortable making a decision on the run. And again, he's a second year guy playing real games for the first time in a couple years, second start. I understand all that. I want that. that the caveat is important, but it just doesn't seem to be in his bag of tricks right now. Um, when he rolls out, even when he's rolling out to his right, which would be the more comfortable way to do that and the way he would usually do that. It, it just seems like so much hesitancy there that it, you, it quickly turns into how long can I string this out and just turn it into just a no loss of yardage or whatever, maybe throw it away. Um, and then eventually he did take that shot late on the last play and it, it turns into an interception. He was kind of forced to in that, that case early in the game, it was playing a little bit safe, but that was, again, it's so hard to compare him to Justin Fields, but I felt like early in Justin Fields' career, he was much, more fam- more comfortable doing that but again it's not fair because Justin Fields did have real games in the SEC to prepare him for what he did his first year at Ohio State no I mean we're covering kind of now a lot of ground that we've covered before I mean it's 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 just about there's two things at play one is the level that a quarterback has to play to regardless of experience for Ohio State's team to succeed at the level that Ohio State is expected to succeed at and that's at play right now for this year like right? can CJ whether it's fair to him or not can he play at that level? Can he do that? And I think that is fair. He had great stats yesterday, but I think that's an open question. I would consider that still an open question. And then the second thing is the development of that quarterback that allows you to be a national championship contender with that quarterback when he gets to his peak. Those are two separate things, especially for right now. And they're going to have to balance those two, but I think both are an open question. And I think we need to talk about those two things in tandem, but on pretty separate paths. And if they lose a second game, then the first path is over. And it's only the second path. Right now, it's still both. But that's what we're going to spend, you know, the next 50 podcasts talking about. And I think we can continue to have a really interesting discussion with our texters and really good podcasts and searching for that. And it's, you know, whatever. It's the big city. It's, it's un, in some ways unfair to do this to a guy after his second career start. But on the other hand, it's Ohio State, and he's the guy who won the job. I know you're getting short on time because your football worlds are colliding here on this Sunday afternoon. One thing, I was surprised that Ohio State's offensive line wasn't able to control this game more. And I kept repeatedly making notes as I was reading back through this 
man, Oregon's filling these gaps well. They were doing all the things that Ohio State's defense wasn't doing well. And to do it without Thibodeau, to do it without Flo, to do it without um, – what was it? Uh, Milton was the other linebacker who got hurt in week one, starting linebacker. I mean, multiple – top end starters for this Oregon defense route. And yet they've came up and filled gaps well and just played really strong fundamental defense. And I thought it was partially, it, it, it was reflective of coaching, frankly. And then partially it was a reminder that Oregon is not like most teams Ohio state plays in that anybody else on a schedule, you lose three players of that caliber. There's a huge drop down to the next guy up. That's not necessarily the case at Oregon. I thought there were times when like the initial hole was there, but then yeah, the linebackers filled the gaps in ways that like once, you know, the Ohio State offensive line blew up in a hole against Minnesota. It's like there was nobody there, right? So I, I think that fourth and two, and there was one good – there was a play when Stroud did dr- roll out to his right and drifted to his right and then hit Olave right on the sideline. It was like a third and ten, and he hit him for like an eight-yard completion. That at least gave them a shot to go for it on fourth down. And that was the fourth and two when Mayan Williams got stuck in the hole by Noah Sewell because Munford tried to get to the second level with the block and couldn't quite get there, and Sewell made the play. But, yeah, I did think, to your point, they were down multiple linebackers and still had linebackers who were sitting in there uh, sitting in there doing stuff against the Ohio State run game. And that's part of it, right? I mean, like you've got to have linemen that get to the second level and get those linebacker blocks sometimes. But um, I do think – I mean, I was trying to watch because we talked after the game like, oh, did they do so much RPO that they couldn't do the sort of just typical run game mauling that offensive linemen love to do. Um, they did do RPO stuff, clearly. They still – I mean, they had a decent – I thought decent number of run calls, some that worked. They never popped huge. And I do think – I think maybe Day got away from it sooner than he should have. Like, I think he – it wasn't like they were getting – zero yards on every carry like I I think Ryan got away from it more quickly than he needed to and I do think those last couple drives would have been aided by a little more win the run game and he was for whatever reason reluctant to do it at that point I I thought one thing that jumped out to me too was every time we've talked to Kevin Wilson last couple years he's made sure that we remember how important the tight ends are in blocking how huge Luke Farrell was to this team, et cetera. Not a lot of 12 personnel in this game. And as we've talked about the success of this run game, in the first half, they played three snaps of 12 personnel, at least through the the first four series. And two of them were when they were pinned at their own five. So you're going with like more of like a, a, a bigger package there to just give your, to make sure you can get those yards and get your, your back from against the wall. And then one other later in that drive, one other 12 personnel, and then they fall started on when they were lined up at 12 personnel and went back to 11 after that. And it just wasn't a big part of this offense. And that was a big part of this offense when it was running the ball well the last couple of years. Yeah, but it's hard. It's like, you, as you said, they threw to Cade Stover and he got popped, but he couldn't hold on. It's like, all right, we're putting Cade, we're putting Cade Stover on and taking Jackson no. Smith and the Jigba off. Exactly. Right. I mean, it's again, it's the, it's one of those things. If this was like a pro league, they'd trade one of their receivers. And I think they, I think they legitimately like, you can tell that like what Brian Hartline was saying about Jackson Smith and Jigba being a good blocker is something they believe in. Cause a lot of those, I mean, it's natural that you're thrown to the slot side anyway, but they like to throw those like screens to Olave mm-hmm. behind Jackson Smith and Jigba and let him try to spring him. Um, so you see them doing that more and more. Um, do you think they stick with this offensive line? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the Harry Miller question is is certainly an interesting one. Again, I don't I don't feel like you know Luke Whipler didn't do his job or anything Saturday. I don't I don't know that that was the case, but I mean, but especially with especially with Harry Miller out, I don't know. I don't like what would you do? Well, I mean, it, it, do you flip the tackles back to where they originally were and start Matthew Jones at left guard? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't feel like. I mean, I think Dewan Jones had a couple false starts. Maybe you know, it certainly wasn't uh, like they were just destroying Ohio State's offensive line with a pass rush or something, right? And Dewan Jones right. should be good in the run game, right? I mean, he's supposed to maul people. So I think it's more. My guess will be that in a world, because Ryan Day came in and talked about like we were out of whack, we were out of whack, we weren't balanced. We're supposed to be balanced, we weren't balanced. Like it was almost bad. I think if 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 it was like if you said to Ryan Day wow, cool, C.J. Stroud threw for 484 yards, I think he would say that's bad. Like, that's not how this offense is supposed to work. We are not supposed to throw for 484 yards. I think Ryan Day is going to come in, and I think Steven suggested in the postgame, they do this and then they react, and I think he's going to come in this week and talk about how we need to establish the run, we need to run the ball more, we need to let our offensive linemen get off and, and get that going. We need to get Mayan and Travion going. And I think they run the ball like crazy next week and get that identity back. Because I think when Ryan day rewatches this, he is going to think to himself, I fell in love with the skill of my receivers. I put too much on the freshman quarterback. And you know what, if we would have tried the run game a little bit more, I actually think it would have worked more than I believed it would have worked in the game and I can't let that happen again last year's Sugar Bowl Ohio State um, Trevor Lawrence threw for 400 yards but he needed 48 attempts to do it and I thought that was a success for the Ohio State defense that day because yep. it meant that you made them one-dimensional and took the run away from them and Ohio State ended up very similar thing you know 484 yards on 55 attempts you kind of they kind of did the same thing that's not the balance that was not Ohio State offense that you saw that was not the Ryan Day offense that was not the formula that they want that you saw on on Saturday and I think it shows in the final result anything else you want to mention before you go watch uh, Baker Mayfield Browns marched right down the field on the first drive and they're up eight nothing so Eight nothing. Crazy. They went for the, the they went well, in, 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 when they went for the Oregon two. Well, no, the, Kansas City had a penalty on the extra point. So when they oh. assessed the penalty, and it was like, well, now you're a half yard from the end zone. They put the offense on the field, and Kareem Hunt dove over the pile. Was it a passing touchdown or a rushing touchdown? Because that's all that matters. I've got Baker on my fantasy team. So Nick Chubb, Nick Chubb yeah. rushing, and OBJ is not playing. Which it's one of things. Well, let us inform our podcast audience that the game that you watched 18 hours ago, a guy didn't play. <laughs> you know that. Well, we're bringing you the, the breaking news here on, on Buckeye Talk. But thanks for joining us, everybody. We will be back, obviously, as usual, no Tuesday pod. We'll be back Wednesday when we hear Ryan Day and the players and probably hopefully some assistant coaches uh, respond. I'm, I'd be interested in how much anybody on this beat writes a name from Tulsa's roster this week coming off of a loss like this. Cause I think there's still a lot to be broken down and a lot to analyze about how Ohio state moves forward from that loss. I, I will say, I mean, we, we spent a lot of time, I hope in an interesting way talking this off season about like how much Ryan day seemed to dread the idea of losing. And now we lost. So I think there is some, um, uh, psychological stuff that that we can try to ask Ryan Day about. We'll see what happens when he goes there. But like he's never he's never had to play after a loss as the head coach because last first two times he lost it ended the season. 
And when was the last time they came out of a, even a regular season game with like this many questions to answer? Like I, you would, this doesn't feel like even after the Indiana game last year. And maybe that's part of the problem too, that maybe they just didn't learn lessons from wins the way they could have last year. It's a, it's a tough spot. I mean, here's the thing too. Here's the thing too. They might win every regular season game the rest of the year by 28. And then we'll be like, remember when we were like, oh, the program's falling apart because of North Oregon. Like it does, like it, most of what we thought about this team still applies. There's still a lot of good, real, real, a lot of really good players. Ryan Day is still a good head coach. Larry Johnson is still a good defensive line coach, right? I mean, like Kerry Combs is still pretty good. Al Washington is still pretty good. Travion Henderson's still going to be a star. Their receivers are still awesome. They just lost, right? So that, that's the thing about this. And I'll be curious to see how they react because there have been times in the past where I feel like Ohio State has reacted poorly to losses because they are so unaccustomed to losing. And it bothers me because guess what? People lose all the time. Every single game that is played has a loser and you are not above losing. And I'm not talking to fans right now because you're fans. You're supposed to be, you know, this is what you do. You're allowed to be upset, but these guys, they cannot act like, they're above losing that like, Oh, we're not going to do and, and I'll be curious to see who we get to talk to this week. I, there have been times in the past when it's like Ohio state lost. So that means we get to talk to half as many players. And when they win, everybody comes out and talks about how great they are. And when they lose, they shut it down. And I think that is a, I think that's a fault. So I hope that they stand up and just let us, let's talk about football. Cause guess what? Sometimes you lose and we're going to ask about losing. Cause guess what? When you win, we ask a lot of questions about that too. So I will be curious to see what the culture, what the vibe under Ryan Day is like when you do this because he was never going to finish his career with an undefeated regular season record. Plenty of one-loss teams have made the playoffs and one-loss teams have even won national championships as Ohio State well knows. So I, I also agree. Uh, Ohio State falls to number nine in the AP poll. Iowa's number five. Cincinnati is number eight. And Penn State's right on Ohio State's butt at number 10, just a couple points behind in the votes. So if uh, Ryan Day likes to use those sort of cosmetic motivators too, those uh, no, no gonna, respect things. So. I want to put you on the spot, though, since we normally would do it on this podcast and we didn't. Where did you vote Ohio State? Uh, ninth. I would say that a team that trailed at halftime at Minnesota and lost at home to a team that was missing its best player has no reason to be ranked ahead above Penn State. There is no way in heck. I didn't rank them above Penn State. Really? I mean, I, I'm I surprised they're in the top ten. Like, I don't – like, there are there – what, the what has Ohio State, State shown you to think they're a top ten team right now? What, I, like, what do they do to earn it? They were trailing to Minnesota. Oh, how good is Minnesota? Yeah. And they lost to a team that didn't have its best player. So, like, what are we talking about here? So, I mean, I'm not saying they won't prove it later, but they're not a top, they should not be ranked in the top 10 right now. The, it, it's fair. It, it depends on, like, did you want to vote Notre Dame ahead of them? Uh, Cincinnati's the one that you would probably vote ahead of Ohio State right now that I didn't vote ahead of Ohio State right like, now. Without question. No question about it. Um, and then Iowa State losing, obviously, that, that changes things a little bit for them. But, I mean, that's a, that's a better loss, but their first win was not that impressive. Um, I had Alabama, Georgia, Oklahoma, Clemson, Iowa, Oregon – Penn State, Texas A&M, Ohio State. And who'd you have behind Ohio State? Notre Dame, Cincinnati, Iowa State, Florida, Auburn. Yeah. It's one of those things. Everybody sucks. That's the thing, too. It's like, how dare you? I'm like, I would have Auburn ahead of Ohio State. It's like, who's Auburn beating? I don't know. Auburn probably stinks. I don't know. 
it was so. weird how quickly I got to, like, you always get to this point where you're doing the poll where you're like, really, I've got to vote for 10 more people after number 15. And yeah. I got to there in week two this year. <laughs> I was like, yeah, what? Virginia tech. What? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for Doug Lee Reese. I'm Nathan Baird. That was Buckeye talk. <laughs>